Hello. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> so good afternoon. Are your bellies full? Ready for nap? <laughs> so we're going to start with a little bit of chanting, and then Wes is going to take us to through a beautiful guided meditation. And if you, if you feel sleepy, which sometimes happens in those afternoon hours, then you, you, you can just stand up for a little bit. That's what I used to do, like the 2 o'clock sit at long retreats can be murder. Um, so what I would do is just, I would just stand up for a little bit, that helps. Standing is actually a very good practice for um, staying awake but still feeling very settled. Yeah, if you fall asleep and you're standing up. <laughs> so this is kirtan response, meaning that it's a traditional way. What's nice about it is that you don't really have to think much. which is not the purpose of chanting anyways. The purpose of chanting is to tap into your own voice on one hand and to hear ourselves in community. I think that's one of the most important part about the chanting is that we, to, to realize that we're in this together. We're not doing this on our own. That's why I love when we, even if in a class you don't say much, but at least you'll chant a little bit. So you put your voice into the room and you hear yourself in relationship with others. And it just creates this fullness and um, this vibe in the room. Plus it is, um, brings a certain amount of juice to your practice too. It's like without the bhakti or that kind of devotion, whatever it is, however you want to tap that devotional part of you, it can be raised in many different ways. Chanting is one of them. It's just, there's something sweet, right? People, when they whistle or sing in the shower, they're happy. <coughs> People are happy when they, when they hum along or sing along. So it, it, it kind of reminds us of that. Plus, it puts the mind at ease because the mind understands that when you're singing, that you're not singing to get to the end of the song, right? And so if you're lucky, that will last through your meditation or yoga practice so you don't think you have to become a good meditator or a good yogi or that it's anything linear that the mind concocts, like, oh, you're doing this to get to be a better yogi. If you just sing, it's like just for the enjoyment of singing in the same way that you sit just for the enjoyment of sitting to receive whatever it is, and the same with yoga as well. So you can just do um, repeat and sink back a little bit physically too. Lean into your back body and feel that being carried of this voice that we create together. So we're going to start with three ohms.
repeat.
So I'd like to say a few words about mindfulness meditation and the spiritual path. I sometimes uh, joke that all of the Buddha Dharma can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. The disciples come to the master and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again until you do get it. It's, it's a central question of almost all traditions. The Hopi say, you must ask, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? What am I? Socrates said, uh, know thyself. In Zen, they have some colorful ways of putting the question, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> or who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? The Buddha said that true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. That that was really at the center of what he was teaching. The false conceit of I or self. Now, unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. We're all born believing that we are in here and the world is out there. And we pretty much go through our lives believing that, uh, that we are acting on the world, and rarely do we feel or realize that the world is acting through us or living through us. Uh, and this leads to, to a great deal of our suffering. Of, uh, it, it's sort of us against the world. Now, there's a caveat here that all life has a sense of its own integrity, a sense of a boundary between itself and the world. The Buddha's genius was that he saw through that boundary and realized that he co-arose, or he was co-arising with all things, which was a very uh, a beautiful realization, allowed him to escape the suffering of always being... Uh, protective of this single being, this individual, this conceit of I or self. I think it's interesting to note that it didn't always feel this way, the way we feel in our culture at this moment in evolution. It didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The clothing of self wasn't always quite as tight as this. I mean, if you came across a medieval peasant or a, uh, a desert nomad, even today, I mean, well, you couldn't run across a medieval peasant today, but <laughs> if you had asked a medieval peasant or a desert nomad or, you know, just a few centuries ago even, uh, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about because you do what you're born into, and it, there's not a lot of questioning. And we live in this culture where we, we feel that we are completely uh, free to be and construct our own personalities and construct our own destinies, and nobody even says God willing, you know. It's, not, it's like we, we live under this false idea that we are totally in control of what happens. And that creates a huge amount of stress and, and burden, and we're always comparing ourselves to others, and 
you know, you can never be handsome enough or rich enough or uh, important enough. It's, it's a, because you see all these Im the imagery that's put on the screens to show you where, where, where you could be if you really, you know, could, could create yourself. That's where you would be. So we, we, uh, we live in a time that's been called uh, the, cul the culture of narcissism. This is from uh, Rollo May, who was a famous psychologist of uh, the last century. Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live. Unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. The myth of individualism. There's, some, there's been some uh, studies of early Greek literature that show that the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. Now, we would consider that kind of schizophrenic. However, we consider all the voices in our heads to be ours, <laughs> which is its own kind of uh, craziness. So we live in this, this time of, uh, of narcissism, of, of what we're lacking what the anthropologists used to call participation mystique, a sense of belonging to a community or to being part of nature. You know, I mean, that's been a, a real struggle in our world. Uh, the fact that our uh, mythology has taken us out of the natural world, made us special. We were specially created and separately created. And uh, that removal has been a, a huge cause for both our individual suffering and perhaps our in ecological crisis. We don't see ourselves in the web of life. I mean, our religions, many of our major religions have come to regard the earth as like a training planet, you know, a place where you come to learn some lessons and burn off some karma, and then you get to go off to some other place where you truly belong. But that, that story, that mythology, removes us from a sense of connection with nature or the rest of the, of the world. Now, we're starting to tell ourselves a new story. We've been telling it for a couple centuries now. And this new story says we're intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. You know, I move my hand, the whole universe is involved. Uh, and our new story is telling us that we're related to all the life that's ever lived, right? That we are, with, with the grasses and the trees and the beasts and the, the bugs, we are, we're cell brothers. Not soul brothers. <laughs> we're cell brothers and cell sisters. That we share this molecule of DNA that seems to separate all life from non-life. Uh, so we're starting to get these new stories about who we are that, show, that says we're really embedded in the world and related to all, all of life on this planet. But that, all that, that new understanding kind of can lie rusting in your neocortex how do you make it come alive inside of you? How, how do you make it the wisdom that you live from? 
How do you integrate that new story, that new mythology? And that's exactly where I think the Buddha Dharma will have its greatest impact, and that is teaching us about our new identity as part of, part of the world. Uh, an example of how it sort of, I think it's been working for me, when I first started paying attention to my breath, like most of us, it was the object of concentration. So, okay, I'm focusing on my breath, and it's always there, and I'm paying attention to it. But over the years, it's gradually become much more than that. First of all, the first lesson was, I'm not breathing. Breath is breathing. Breath is happening. In fact, if I stop, well, I mean, you know, if you, you didn't pay attention to your breath all during lunch, and it was still going on, right? We hardly ever pay attention to it. But also, uh, if you tried to stop breathing, you'd, you know, held your breath, you would pass out and breathing would continue, you know? It's like the breath got into you and demands that you continue to, to breathe and to live. So that started to become a lesson that there was all this, that I didn't really own this life. This life was happening. And uh, I happened to be aware of it. I happened to be a witness to it or, you know, I integral to it. But it, it wasn't mine. And another lesson that, that arose was um, that this mystery of what life is was sort of part of the breath. And that I could, I, I began to feel the breath along with a kind of wonder and a kind of uh, delight in the fact that I was one of the live ones. That became my primary identity was no longer I am West, the, you know, the, the guy, the Jewish guy living in Oakland and, and you know, doing this and that. And I, I was one of the live ones. That was my primary identity. You are too. Your name here. I am one of the live ones. You know, sign it. You could sign it. <laughs> it's funny. I, you know, if you ask somebody how you would identify yourself, hardly anybody ever says, well, I'm alive. Hardly anybody ever says, well, I'm an earthling. Very few people will ever say, well, I'm, a, I'm an animal. I'm a mammal. And yet... That is so much a part of who we are. I don't know if you're aware of this, but your DNA, the, the information, the, the uh, instructions for building and maintaining you, that's your DNA essentially, is almost exactly the same as the DNA of the person sitting next to you, about almost 100%. Uh, you know, uh, the instructions are almost identical for making and, and, and maintaining you and me and the Dalai Lama and House Speaker John Boehner and Oprah and Britney Spears. Our individual differences are just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design, mammalian design. We share nearly 90% of our DNA with mice. That's because it takes so much information to make a basic mammal. You know, you have to make a nervous system and a circulatory system and a digestive system and 
immune system and senses and instincts and put them all together and make them work. It's enormous amount of information. That's why we share so much of our DNA with mice. With, uh, with worms, we share almost 50% of our DNA. And almost 30% of our DNA we share with yeast. The message, of course, is that we are just intimately integrated with all the other life that lives. As we meditate, we begin to observe ourselves in a scientific kind of way. Usually we're so lost in our individual drama, we actually don't see what's going on. When we begin to develop this quality of mindfulness, which is really a scientific method, because you're being as objective as possible about yourself as the subject. And you begin to explore and, and look at all the phenomena that happen. And you begin to see that, you know, so much of what happens to you is instinct. is stuff inherited from millions of years in the past. And then, of course, all the psychological stuff that you have, that you know, all the patterns of thinking that, that go on. But you begin to really question whether this is you or not. I mean, isn't it the, I mean, I, it was always the most shocking thing to me, and still is, when I first sit down and begin to meditate, even, you know, in the morning, and my intention is to just be present with the breath. And then all these thoughts start coming. And I believe in about three-fourths of them, you know, and start, you know, cogitating and planning. I didn't, I didn't start this, you know. It's sort of like I have... I started meditating, I think, because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. It was a heavy thinker, you know. Started thinking the minute I got up in the morning, thinking in the middle of the day, had to have a few thoughts before I went to bed at night. No, I needed an intervention. But isn't it shocking to you when you sit down and you realize all this stuff is going on and how, how little perspective you have on it, how little understanding you have on it, and how you get caught over and over again in the same you know, boring, rep repetitive plan and agitation and, you know, issue that you think, oh, shut up, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't shut up. Unless you really begin to see and disown it or really understand its origin, it's not I, me, my, mine. And the Buddha talks over and over again about Take this quality of mindfulness, this uh, observing quality, and go in and look at your body, look at your breath, look at your emotions, look at your thoughts, and ask yourself this construction of self that I've, that I've created, uh, what is its origin, what is its ancestry? And then he says over and over and over again, you will realize this is not I. This is not mine. This is not myself. And that's where the liberation lies. A couple of things. I just, uh, let me share a few things. I mean, your body, it's so obvious 
that, you know, it's amazing that we don't realize it. Well, here's the, here's the Buddha himself on why none of this is I, me, or mine. Monks, he says, or followers, this form is non-self. Because if this form were self, it would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to, de- to de- determine my form. Let my form be this way. Let my form be that way. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction. And it's not possible to determine what my form will be. In other words, you don't, you don't get to choose it. It's not owned by you. Uh, that's what he keeps. That's what he keeps telling us to examine, and and understand. Um, now, the the body. I mean, if you own this body, you you know, doing yoga would be. Everything would be possible, right? You could do the pretzel pose or whatever you guys call it. What you know? I mean, you could. <laughs> If, your body, if you owned this body, you would never have pain, would you? If you owned this body, you could, you know, but you don't. The story of evolution is our collective biography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled little sphere, and then into a tubular worm-like body, and then grows rudimentary fins and gills and webbed fingers and toes, features of uh, reptiles and amphibians. We cycle through the, the DNA of all these beings, the, all these evolutionary periods. And then uh, even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. And it all happens in the warm sea of the womb. And at birth, we repeat the exodus from the ocean and enter the world. This is pretty interesting. You take your arm and uh, realize you have one bone in the upper arm. Then it becomes two bones in the forearm. And then there's a bunch of little bones at the wrist and then five digits. Uh, The same arrangement of bones exists in your legs and all creatures with limbs. Either wings, flippers, fins, or hands all have this bone, the skeletal design. Uh, This was discovered by an anatomist, Richard Owens, in the mid-1800s, and he published a classic monograph called On the Nature of Limbs. And after this study came out, Darwin came out with an explanation. The reason that human arms and bird wings or, and frog legs share the same pattern of bones is because we have a common ancestor, that we all come down through the same lineage. Uh, Richard Dawkins had a wonderful way of, of reflecting on this. He said, say you have a picture of your great-grandfather. He looks a little bit like you or a member of your family anyway. Then go back 4,000 great-grandfathers. Everybody can. Everybody has a 4,000th back, back, back great-grandfather. You'd probably see somebody with a a kind of funny-shaped head and 
you know, a little different looking, someone who your grandmother would never mate with, you know. <laughs> then go back 150 million great-grandfathers. And we all can do that. And you would have a picture of a fish. That's part of our lineage. Your, some of your ancestors had scales. It's so shocking to, to even begin to think that, you know. Our body contains uh, thousands of different species of microbes, bacteria. There are something like 7,000 different species of, of bacteria in your large intestine alone. The recent study that was really shocking, or the recent figures, that 90% of your body is made up of other uh, cells of other species of life. 90, 90. So, as Lynn Margulis, famous molecular biologist, says, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. Each of us is a community. There's some speculation that bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. <laughs> you get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood, you know? But... Okay, so we can't get that refined maybe with our mindfulness yet, but we be can begin to realize that we don't own this body, that it gets sore when it wants to, it gets hungry when it wants to, it gets tired when it wants to, it gets horny when it wants to, that we're inhabiting it for a while, but it is not I, me, mine. The same goes for emotions and, uh, you know, and the thinking process. And, and it's not like you suddenly, you know, uh, fall apart because you don't, uh, no longer have a self. But you start to gain some understanding of what's going on in this fathom-long body, as the Buddha called it, uh, and realize that, you know, you can sort of try to manage it to some degree, but it is not who you are. That you are actually part of the world. The world is part of you. The world is moving through you. It's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting quest, this spiritual, this spiritual life. Let me see if there's something else that I want to say before we do another uh, a meditation. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible. We need a new experience of what it means to be I. Sometimes it's really interesting when you're sitting and meditating, see how many of your thoughts have something to do with survival. The utmost central imperative of all life, stay alive. And that goes for you, too. I mean, that's, that's the prime command, uh, you know, and, and 
See how much of your thinking mind or your emotional mind, uh, life revolves around that. It's very, it's very uh, liberating to see that. It's not you. It's not, this is my, I, I think the ultimate spiritual message of our new story of evolution is this. You are not your fault. <laughs> it's very liberating. Very liberating. You are not your fault. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not, you know, that it's not precious. And, but you begin, when, with, with this understanding, you begin to embrace all of life and the world in, in a different way than you do, uh, you know, when you, when you think you're an individual moving through it all and, and, and totally self-focused. It become you, you, you start to grow compassion for, for it all because you are it all. Or it is all you. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So, so uh, let me read you a little poem and then we'll, we'll sit here. Wilderness. There is a wolf in me. <laughs> Fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat and the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me, a silver gray fox I sniff and guess. I pick things out of the wind and air I nose in the dark night. I circle a loop and double cross. There is a hog in me, a snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping, satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fish in me. I scurried. I blew spouts with porpoises. Before land was, before the water went down, before Noah, before the first chapter of Genesis. There is a baboon in me, clamoring, clawed, dog-faced, yawping a galoot's hunger, hairy under the armpits, ready to snarl, ready to sing and give milk. Waiting, I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There is an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags of what I want, and the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone, Warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope, gushes over the blue Ozark foothills of my wishes, and I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart, and I got something else. It is a man-child heart and a woman-child heart, and it is father and mother and lover, and it came from God knows where, and it's going to God knows where. I am sometimes the keeper of the zoo. I can say yes and no. I'm a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness. Carl Sandburg.
So let's, uh, let's do a little sitting practice. Once again, bring your attention inward, and once again, be aware of this quality, this mysterious quality of aliveness. Let yourself step back out of the whole drama and simply become an observer, resting in awareness. Maybe keep a light attention on the sensations of the breath. Don't hold on too tightly. Let things happen in the mind.
Just hold the mind still, hold the awareness still, without reacting as much as possible, without getting caught up in a thought or a feeling. Just let the phenomena appear and disappear on their own. All you have to do is hold the awareness still. No blame. What you are witnessing is the human condition with its habits of planning, worrying, No blame.
holding the mind still is partly a practice of acceptance. You are perfectly human. If you feel lost or confused, come back to the sensations of breath as your refuge. Feeling this central pulse.
one thing I I wanted to say that I didn't uh, that I forgot in regard to uh, our evolutionary nature, the fact that we have evolved uh, in the late '60s in uh, at the National Institute of Mental Health, a man named Paul McLean was studying the evolution of the human brain and realized that we didn't have a brain. We had three brains. And they develop in each of us in the embryo, embryonic stages in the same way, in the same order they developed in nature. So first we grow a reptilian brain, that's what it's called, the brain stem. Then we grow a mammalian brain, uh, or the limbic system as it's known, and then the new human brain or neocortex. And it turns out that one brain doesn't override the other brains, and they're very intimately interconnected. And more and more research is starting to show that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that consciousness actually comes in late in the game, that, uh, that, that kind of awareness, and that there's so much of our mental processing goes on beneath conscious awareness. And that, you start to learn that in meditation. You start to see it up close and personal, how much, uh, how much of our processing takes place beneath any kind of, uh, of consciousness. It's, it's quite shocking, really. Um, but again, it's the beginning of freedom is to see how the knots are tied. You have to see them before you can you can even begin to uh, to untie them or, or uh, ignore them, go around them. So we have time for a few questions if there are any, or a few answers if there are any. <laughs> There's no selves out there. There's no nobody to question anything. Enough over there. Yeah. I don't have a question. I just have a, um, a comment about bacteria and humans. Oh, good. Yeah. Wait. So my my comment about bacteria and humans and all the new um, research about our uh, fauna. Um, is that it's they outnumber us cells wise in number, but not in mass. Not in obviously. mass. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And that we co evolve together. So the We do what? We, we co evolve. Oh, we co evolved, yes. So and continue to co evolve. <laughs> With the bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So anyway, I could go on for forever, but that's not what it's about. Are you so a molecular <laughs> bi- bacteria uh, biologist? No, I'm, I'm, a, a, I'm, a I'm a doctor. A doctor. So how did the um, bacteria evolve? Tell me about that. Well, they evolve depending on what we eat. So they're very different in people that uh, have evolved eating rice. They're different in people that have evolved eating seaweed. There's seaweed DNA um, in... Japanese, for example, um, that eat lots of seaweed. Um, the strains are very different if you eat a lot of meat and cheese versus if you eat a lot of vegetables. So what happens now? 
We have a lot of different types of bacteria. <laughs> and we share them together. So um, we share them with our pets. Um, we share them with our friends. There's some theories that the reason that people, uh, people that get fat, they have friends that also get fat, and maybe it's because they actually share different bacteria that help us hold on to more calories. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Anybody else? I don't even know quite how to, I'm not even sure it's a question, but just after, I don't know, 30 years of practice, it just strikes me every time I'm sitting in a group like this, a day long or a retreat or a sangha, that the quality of practice is so profoundly different in the field of other practitioners. And... Um, for maybe because I'm tend to be more extroverted than introverted, you know, there's something about that that's attractive mm -hmm. in a way that mm -hmm. you know it's very distinct from um, solo practice. Mm -hmm. And so, not wanting to be comparing, but you know, just that's just my observation and my experience. I'd be interested to hear if uh, either of you have any comments about that you know because for me the the longing to have like the field really sensing into the field is so much easier when when we're closer together mm -hmm. maybe it's the the shared bacteria you know <laughs> um is geographically more accessible but there's really something about that and for me it's just at the moment it's not very practical to always be sitting with other people every day. So I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts might be about that. I, yeah, no, I think a, a lot of people have that experience, that sitting with other people creates a field, creates a kind of energy that, that it just isn't available when you're sitting alone. Uh, and, and in some way, we're, we're all evolving together. We're all waking up together. It's actually a species-wide movement. When you think about it, uh, this these kinds of practices have only been around for a couple thousand years, and uh, that's not much time biologi in biological time, in evolutionary time. And that, you know, we're, we're gaining a different kind of self-awareness than, than any species that it ever had, it seems. And we're doing it together. And uh, it is nice to, to be in a group practicing and... Uh, you know, you're getting you're getting some juice from the people around you, realizing that their minds are just as crazy as yours. Misery loves company, you know. <laughs> Same with yoga practice. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is. But there's also there's something sweet about 
your own yoga practice or maybe even meditation practice when you hit it in the way that is really good for you. That's what I've noticed. Like when it's free of the expectation of what it should be, then it's just as sweet when you do it on your own. That's what I've noticed. But because there is no longer this expectation that I used to have, I have to sit so long or do this. And I simply show up for a little bit and check in. And then I feel like it's almost the same as, like I feel like sometimes even though I'm very far away in Santa Fe, in my own little room, but I feel so tapped in to everybody out there doing prayers or yoga practice. But I think it, when it's stripped of the kind of discipline of the way that we think it should look like, it actually becomes the sweetest part of your day. And then whether you do it alone or with others, it'll almost be the same. So I encourage you to find that space. Does that make sense? Yes, back there. Megan. Earlier, we were talking about the the numb state, and um, one thing I've been watching a lot in myself recently is the judgment and um, anger, and even deeper than that, like a rage and shame state, and. Um, like I really appreciated the quote you are not your fault and I was thinking when Kachi was saying that we should become best friends with our body I feel like I can do that but becoming best friends with my mind <laughs> seems a hell of a lot harder <laughs> and I know we're talking about that and I just think I could really benefit from just hearing some more about that from, mm -hmm. from you both well, I would guess, and you know, I, I may be wrong, but I would guess that the voices that are hard for you to hear in your head are ways that you were taught to take care of yourself, that they are actually there trying to protect you or somehow keep you safe or they have something to do with your own survival. And so now they may be inappropriate. So rather than hating them or going to war with yourself if you can you can bow and say thank you for trying to take care of me but it's no longer you know appropriate or i don't you know i no longer need to hear you that you acknowledge them those voices without uh without you know hating hating them cuz they probably were they probably are trying to take care of you or were Right, and now you've outgrown them, or you've you know you don't need them anymore, or they're they're you want new ones. Does that help? Absolutely. I, I I think people get you know they get at war with their own minds, and that that not it's not healthy, it's not helpful. If you can acknowledge that you know. Acknowledge their origin. Hmm. That's very sweet.
So, one. So I'm wondering, kind of along the same lines, what what advice might you have when the voices um, that are very angry and uh, are actually coming from another human being that's someone who's uh, uh, in your life, family perhaps, and you see them struggling and with anger or with you know, any number of things. I'm not inside their head, so I'm not sure what it is, but mm-hmm. someone who's very, having a very hard time. And I don't want to come along and be any kind of like rescuing mm-hmm. Dharma person, you know, because that's just not a good idea. Um, but how to stay compassionate and present with yourself when somebody else that you're very close with is very angry mm-hmm. and worrying about the future and the fears yeah, and the dangers. Yeah. And so how do you stay, like, how do you not push that away? Yeah. It's difficult, but, uh, I mean, I, I think one thing that you can do to work with it is to <coughs> do compassion practice or loving-kindness practice for that person silently in, within yourself so that you don't get quite so caught up in the maelstrom of their, of, of their problems and stuff when you're with them. But, you know, if you silently are practicing a, a kind of compassion for them or a loving-kindness practice for them, then that will come, that will come out in your presence as you're with them. And I don't know that you can really, you know, the compassion practice is, uh, the, the, you know about the Brahma Viharas, the four, yeah. And uh, of course the, the last one, equanimity, is, you know, you are the heir of your own karma. And uh, I, I wish you the best, and I, you know, I have love and I have compassion, but it, you, have to, you have to acknowledge that None of us can save any any anybody else. We can barely save ourselves, <laughs> if if that if that at all. But anyway, it's I, I don't. Do you have any? No, that's exactly where I went to. Yeah. Equanimity. Equanimity uh, and compassion. Pray for them. Yeah, that's what it comes down to in really? some way. Yes, Maybe one here. one more. I notice myself feeling a little self-conscious and embarrassed. I'm going to try and roll into that and also let it go. Um, <laughs> but uh, it takes courage to ask a question. Um, yeah, thanks. And this is my first time doing anything like this. So, um, so I, I love the idea of letting go of the self and the, the idea that we're all so interconnected. And it's liberating and, and freeing. And, and then I also could envision myself or anticipate myself starting to feel guilty when I notice myself noticing myself right and and sort of getting so into myself rather than feeling connected to others and so how to have compassion around that how to not you know shame myself when I'm being selfish as it were does that make sense 
Um, so, so how to practice it and work toward it while also sort of de-shaming myself for that tendency to go toward the self. If I, I, I'm not quite sure I understand, but you're, you're concerned about being selfish, about being selfless. <laughs> no, I want to work toward letting go of the idea of the self uh-huh. while also acknowledging that it's really, really hard and um, yeah. how to do both simultaneously. You know, How to work toward letting go of that while also having compassion that it's really difficult. Yeah, and... well, yeah. <laughs> Join the club. Right? Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. Uh, it is like the hardest thing that anybody could ever ask you to do. It's just like totally off the charts in difficulty. And I don't know anybody who's succeeded from the Dalai Lama to, you know, forest monks in Thailand. Nobody, nobody succeeded. So relax. You know, it, a couple more lifetimes you'll get it maybe. You know, so uh, no, seriously, seriously. You understand it, you come to meditate, you do your meditation practice and, and just uh, learning to sort of accept your own, you know, uh, your own craziness and embrace yourself. I mean, that's what all of it comes down to is embracing yourself, loving yourself. That's what, that's what the whole Dharma comes down to. So however, however you can manage to do that. That's just what, what I was going to say, too. Am I on? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I was just going to say, too. You know, that when that process of befriending yourself, whether it's your body or feelings, then there's like, there's almost like, when I do something crazy, it's almost like part of me is watching, like, doing look at that that's really crazy what is going on here and it's almost like a part of you is watching and then there comes this like tenderness like wow she really is hungry today look at her eating all this stuff (laughs) or whatever you know when I'm like attacking the fridge it's like usually when I go to Europe the first two nights it's like it's a horror like, I don't know whether it's a jet lag or something, but I get, like, I never eat in the night. But I, the first two nights in Europe, I get up at 3 in the morning, and I will gnaw through my friend's refrigerator. <laughs> like, I mean, from chocolate to the cheese, anything in sight. And part of me is just like, wow, this is, I can't stop it. It's just, it's like an attack from, like, you know, the, the zombie eaters. But there's also part of me that's kind of watching and saying, wow, look at that. That's so interesting. (laughs) And there's almost a part also that is like tender with that. Like, oh, she must be really hungry today. And so there's not this like obsession about like, oh, am I doing this right? Or sometimes you do crazy thing. And I think that the best that we can come up with is that kind of curious and kind of caring voice in the background that says, oh, look at her go. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, it's like you don't want to take the old guilt from uh, the old religions, you know, uh, you're guilty if you don't. Don't feel guilty if you can't be mindful all the time. Because, you know, you'll just feel guilty all the time, (laughs) basically. That that reminds me of that, of that somebody, like I forget which master, but 
he was he was teaching mindfulness and then he always said that you do one thing at a time you know and so then he he himself was caught in the morning reading the paper and drinking his coffee or whatever and the student was all like wait a minute I thought we're you know doing one thing at a time and the master said well when you read the morning paper and eat just read the morning paper and eat <laughs> and the student was like Huh? It's not as complicated as the mind tries to make it. It really isn't. Thank you. Thank you all for the questions and uh, your practice. Did anybody feel sleepy? Mm -hmm. All right. It's like the poor man's nirvana, right? That's what I always think that, you know? You could even kind of watch yourself sleeping a little bit. It's kind of sweet. It's like, oh, look. Hello, 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 hello. Really? No, I probably it probably was out then. I was listening in the office. It was just the last minute. Okay. Um, so it looks like we're still okay on battery. All right. So I'll turn it off for five minutes and say. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash. Donate.